Hello and welcome to the EG Property Podcast and another in our series of sessions recorded live at MIPIM 2023. This panel, chaired by me, EG editor Sam McClary, tackled a topic very close to all of our hearts at EG, diversity. The session, hosted in partnership with JLL, takes a look at the role of effective leadership in creating a truly inclusive real estate sector. Over the course of the next 45 minutes or so, the panel discusses everything from the role of a leader in ensuring a diverse workforce, the importance of a next generation speaking up, and how the real estate sector can, or should, lead in terms of the inclusive places it creates. A must-listen for any leader. Enjoy. Uh, good morning. Uh, my name is Sam McClure. I'm the editor of EGN. I'm really, um, really delighted to be hosting um, or chairing this session to, to today, this morning. It's uh, something that is very dear to me at EG, um, uh, dear to all of us at EG, which is um, uh, DNI and how do we create a truly inclusive real estate. Um, so this session is looking at why effective leadership is, is key to that. And I have such an excellent panel um, up, on, up on stage. Um, so before we get into the discussion, I'm going to ask each of uh, my wonderful panel here to give a little bit of an intro, uh, tell us who they are, where they came from, a little bit of uh, and then uh, answer the question of um, how D&I is affecting their business. So Mel, as you're closest to me, why don't you start? Good morning, everybody. I'm Melanie Leach. I'm Chief Executive of the British Property Federation, which is the membership association for all parts of the UK real estate uh, industry. So we represent everyone from developers to investors to lenders to agents to lawyers to planning consultants, everybody who uh, in some way is involved in, in UK real estate. Um, and um, I sort of reflected about uh, how I answer that question and any other question Sam might ask me, and she'll have a left field question at some, some point. But I suppose where maybe where I'll start is to say that you know we have we're the we we are the voice of the industry. You know I spend my time trying to speak about all the good things the industry is doing to represent that to government to work with government to create the right environment for us to do even better. So for me we have a platform and a reach and an authenticity and a reputation within the industry that means we have a responsibility to be say, telling this story really loudly and clearly about how important it is to create a diverse and inclusive sector because if we don't we will die as a sector because if we can't tap into all the talents that are available across society we won't thrive and we won't serve communities because how can we serve them if we don't represent them excellent thank you mel roland hi everybody uh, i'm roland carthouse i'm a program lead at the design council for infrastructure i also work for uh, ucl institute for innovation and public purpose uh, and I'm an architect and um, co-founder of an architecture practice. Um, in, in our work with Design Council, uh, we work with um, national infrastructure organisations and uh, like the property sector, they uh, suffer from a s significant lack of diversity. I think any discussion around EDI has to start with a recognition of the scale of the problem. And I think um, it's great, to, to, I appreciate being invited onto this panel. It's great to see uh, better than average diversity in this room here. But I think we only have to look outside to see the scale of the problem uh, that we're facing generally. Um, with, with the infrastructure organisations, 
they're recognizing the need to change, but whilst that takes time, they also need to improve the output of what they do. So the Design Council's been working with them uh, through a design training program called the Design Academy, where we're taking them back to first principles, reminding them about who their work is serving, and helping them to reframe their assumptions in order to make the changes that they need to make their built environment more inclusive. Through the work with UCL IIPP, we're working with Camden Council to deliver on four missions that they have developed through consultation with their residents. And one of those missions is that by 2030, Camden's estates will, uh, sorry, uh, Camden, people in power in Camden will be reflective of their population. Now that gives a measurable time-bound target and that give, that I, I feel that that's what's needed to drive change. I think we've seen the effect of um, targets and standards in sustainability in the built environment and I think to shift the needle in EDI we need similar um, targets. Thank you. Barbara. Thank you. I'm Barbara Cominelli. I'm the CEO of JLL in Italy and I joined the JLL uh, a little bit more than two years ago. I'm coming from uh, from uh, Microsoft and from Vodafone, so I'm diverse also in terms of background and uh, why uh, why DNI is important uh, for JLL. This is also one of the reasons I joined JLL because it's a company where really we're trying to accelerate the progress in this sense. Here uh, in the room, for example, you have also Stephanie. She is our uh, CEO in the UK. You have a lot of people who are really trying to drive and accelerate the change inside the organization. I think that uh, what we are trying to do is move beyond uh, the basics. So the basics are already recognized, so we all know why uh, DNI is important. I think we have stopped no, discussing why this is a business value. So we have plans, we have KPIs, we have best practices. Uh, we have women who can role model, which was another problem that we couldn't offer to our younger generation role model. Now we have women who have broken the ceiling. I think the moment now is to scale and to accelerate. So that's why I think it's important that we do it as an ecosystem. No? So individual company can do a lot, but all together we can really drive the change and accelerate. Fantastic. Thank you. Valerie. Um, good morning. My name is Valerie Vaughan-Dick, and I'm the Chief Executive Officer for the Royal Institute of British Architects. There's more than 57,000 architects who are our members, and it's not just in the UK. It's, it's a global organisation. One of the key things that we've looked at when you're talking about equality, diversity and inclusion is that the architecture as an industry is seen as very elitist white men. And we are underrepresented when you've got women. We are underrepresented when you're talking about black people, Asian people and other minorities. And they're minorities in the UK, they're not minorities in the world. But what we've got to understand is when you're looking at the built environment, the Royal Institute of British Architects is not looking on its own on how to address this issue. We are working as part of a consortium with other partners from the built environment, you know, surveyors, engineers, designers. And we're looking as um, a collaboration to think about what we need to do what we need to do is to get the statistics, to get the data, to know what it is and how we are about to work together to address this. And I think it's really important because if you've got groups, women, people who are less abled, 
than some of us in this room who are underrepresented. All the designs, all the engineering, everything we do in the built environment, we are not representing them and it's not right. So I think colleagues who have just spoken have hit on a number of key important points. But this is a time for action because it's quite interesting to have these discussions. But what the Royal Institute of British Architect is doing with other partners is thinking about the actions which are positive, which are realistic, and which can be measured to do something about change. Because this is something not from an industry, this is from society, and it's baked in history, but we can change that, and that's what we're trying to do. Fantastic, thank you, Paul. Thank you. Um, my name is Paul Modu. I'm a property professional with nearly eight years' experience, but also I'm a founding committee member of Real Estate Balance Next Generation. Um, for many of you who know Real Estate Balance, our managing director is Sue Brown. Um, Sue Brown, who's, who's a legend in our, in our industry and really driving diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, Real Estate Balance started off as a membership organisation principally focused on gender, you know, building and gender equality. Um, and when I joined Real Estate Balance Next Gen in 2020, one of the things I challenged Real Estate Balance to do is to open its doors to other realms of diversity. Um, and that's something which we are doing and, and increasingly passionate about. Now, I think there's a massive opportunity here in the built environment. And I'm glad we're using the words built environment rather than just property um, as well, because I believe there is a, an ecosystem at play here. Um, there are many different moving parts. Um, and, and I think there's an opportunity for us to, one, accelerate, which is words we've used here, um, action. And, and really take it to the next level. Um, I think for all intents and purposes, the last few years have been really challenging, um, but actually it gave us an opportunity to stop and think, what do we actually want for this industry? Um, how ambitious are we? Um, are we just here to, to fill up and tick some boxes? I think uh, from my perspective and my observations, I think we're done with that. I think the world has changed, and, and if we don't change with it, we will be left behind. Fantastic. Thank you. What brilliant introductions. Um, so this is such a huge, huge topic, isn't it? And, I, um, and we could probably spend all day talking about it, trying to trying to fix it, trying to find that that action and, and moving beyond those basics. But I want to try and um, keep today's discussion to two, two key points, I suppose. One around that the role that leadership has and how um, we move beyond the basics there in, in making sure that our our leadership is diverse and that trickles trickles down and throughout um, companies, but then also what that means for the built environment that we create and and how all of that comes comes together. So so let's start and and Paul, I'm going to come um, straight back to you on um, the importance of, of of leadership and the importance in the of the next gen in in talking to uh, current leadership about what's going to come forward in in years to come. Thank you very much. When we talk about leadership, and I think the key word is effective leadership, so we can recognise as leaders um, across various different businesses, but how effective are, are, you know, are they? I think there's an opportunity to first define what effective leadership is. And if you were to do any research on effective leadership, you'll see strong communication, you'll see someone who's decisive, assertive, all the strong attributes of a leader. And I think now when we're looking at this current terrain, it's actually the humility it's um, 
being culturally, culturally aware, um, being sensitive, um, and first and foremost, listening. And something which we're doing in the Real Estate Balance Next Generation Group, we've set out a number of different surveys. Um, surveys which has a focus on professionals with about less than 15 years experience. So we wanted to really address that cohort of the industry um, so that leaders can first understand what are the critical issues which are being faced. Um, something which is really topical, for example, is hybrid working. And hybrid working, for, for, for some accounts, is successful in, in some parts of the industry, but not successful in others. You know, how is that impact being fared amongst young professionals? And another thing which we're doing is we, we host a number of breakfasts. So again, C-suite professionals, like many of you here today, you know, we want to build that collaboration. We want to be able to communicate and talk through some of the challenges going on. And that's actually, that's been pretty successful. Um, and it's then moving along from that just a, a conversation to some of the actionable plans. And that's something which we are working on um, as we speak. Thank you. M Melanie, you, um, you talk to leaders across our business every, every day, of, day of the week. And we have some amazing um, uh, female leaders in this industry, but we are still male dominated. When you're talking to um, those, those men, are they understanding the, the change that's needed? Are they, can they be effective leaders around EDNI? They absolutely can be effective leaders, and they need to be. I don't think there's any... Um, there oughtn't to be no differentiation at that leadership level of the recognition of the importance of driving a more diverse and inclusive business and how important that is to the health of the business and to therefore to their personal success as the leader of that business. It ought not to matter. They can be just as effective in leading this agenda as, as anyone can be. Um, of course, what you don't have at the moment is the role models that people can aspire to and look up to, and that, that will change and is changing, but it is changing very slowly. All right, Sam. But in terms of the leadership that's needed, not only actually to recognise um, the profile of your workforce, you know, but actually to think, my business might need to be different because you know, I'm not going to just bring in more diverse people you know, who are all different shapes and fit them into the same square holes. I'm actually going to say, what shape are you? Where, where, can I, where can I make a, sh a hole that shape? This is a terrible analogy, isn't it? But bear with me. Um, you know, where can I make a hole that shape that you fit into without me trying to change you to look like us? And I think that's a real, real challenge. And that's only going to come from the top. You know, I think in, in most businesses, as Paul's talking about, you know, there's a kind of combination of bottom down. The leadership's really critical, but also the bottom up, where actually you've got people really hungry for change, really demanding change, and increasingly being given a voice that allows them to do that. And we're certainly doing that in the BPF, in the work that we do. We're trying to give our young professionals network an ever-increasing voice in shaping the policy positions we have in being a, having a real stake in the in the BPF and but we're, we're tiny you know that but everyone should be doing that everyone should be saying how do I create the platform how do I empower people how do I encourage more diverse voices and gosh that's really uncomfortable actually because I might have to change as a result of that yeah, thank you. Um, Valerie, you mentioned the, um, the work that you're doing with the other, other bodies across the built environment and the importance of, of data in understanding what shape holes they, they are that we need, to, we need to... I don't know why we're still going with that, but we'll try. Well, um, and what, what are you learning for, from that and how can we bring that into um, the, the leadership that we have in this industry currently so that we can understand those, those different shaped holes? There's a number of things. Um, if we look at the, uh, the statistics, and I'm just talking about the UK, 22% of the population identify they have a disability. 
Whereas if you survey a number of organisations, a number of professions, there'll be two, three, four percent. Something is wrong. There's under-reporting because people feel that their organisation, it's not safe to say, I haven't got the same abilities as you. So I think to make sure that as an organisation we have, we're safe in that perspective is important. Secondly, it's important that we recognise difference. And when I'm talking about difference, there are some people for religious reasons where they can't work to a certain time on a Friday. There's certain people for their own cultural choices, they don't want to drink alcohol, etc., etc., and they don't feel comfortable getting to a senior level in certain industries because they won't fit the mould. And I think we have to be cognizant of all of these differences, and we have to be cognizant as well about the entry into those professions. The entry sometimes means it's, there's a class bias, there's a bias against those who've got certain funding, and we have to look at the educational entrance requirements for certain industries. So there's a whole host of issues that will mean that if we get the data and understand what it is people are saying reflects them, we as an organisation, as a group, have to change. Because as I think, Melanie, you said, this is the mould, but we have to change the mould to accept difference. Because if we don't accept difference, that's injustice, and injustice is not right. Amen to that. Uh, Barbara, you talked about, you know, you've come into JLL from very different industries. Is this universal or is this a very um, real estate built environment uh, issue? No, of course, also in technology, when I, where I come from, we have the same problem. I think uh, if I can, going back to the leadership issue, it's very important that the leaders in the organization, we at the top of the organization, start really implementing the plans that we have defined with HR. And sometimes it means to take risk, to make an extra effort, to make an investment. But uh, let me give you my small example for uh, our, um, our, our, in Italy, in Italy. We decided that we wanted to achieve 50% representation. It took two years, but we made it. And it was through a plan of communicating, changing the recruiting, changing the way we engage with the people on the market. Now we are 50% at the overall in terms of FTEs and 50% in the board. This is, I, I'm not saying it's easy, no? And not always you can, you can do it, but uh, it, from, for example, when we are recruiting, sometimes you need to ask your leaders, Wait a little bit longer. Don't fill the position like that. Widen the panel of candidates. So I'm not saying that it's painful. It takes an investment and an effort. But I feel that really it's time for us to take that extra risk to send down the elevator and bring up more diversity. Not only women. For us, the most crucial issues, issue, the first one to start with was women, but it's not the only one. And I think that... Uh, uh, when you do that and you start say, showing that it can be done, that uh, the business is still is not disruptive, that uh, people are happy, that uh, especially that people realize, especially men, that this is about meritocracy. Because when you have an organization where at the top you only have people with the same mold, 
I'm not sure this is an indication that uh, your recruiting machine is working very well and the proce processes that you have inside to promote are really meritocratic. So I'm always saying that meritocracy is the best friend of diversity because when you can have a diverse representation at the top, it means that it's working. And if I can add another thing, I think this is the time for the alliance with men. So, uh, women, we do a lot, no? We send down the elevator, we role model, we sponsor, and I think that uh, it's good and we, we need to do it more. But now is the time to embark men, leaders, on this journey and to make them the heroes of the story. So, in Italy, for example, we have an initiative called CEO Factory. We have engaged 100 CEOs and we ask them to mentor the future generation of women leaders. So they put their face, they go out, they speak, they need to walk the talk. Sometimes it's not easy because if you are a 50 years old man with a certain background, it's, you feel shy no? about uh, uh, advocacy, advocating for minorities because we need to say, no, don't be shy. You're our ally, be together with us in this journey. So I think that uh, this is the moment where we need to make uh, men uh, the heroes of the story. Fantastic. Um, I w we, we used a term uh, a little earlier about bre breaking the mold. We're going to move away from holes and go to, go to um, mold. And uh, <laughs> Barbara, I'm really interested um, to hear from you as well. Now you've got to that 50% parity has that um changed some of the advice that you're you're giving to, to clients so have you seen a, a sort of a a tangible difference in the way that you do do business and the advice that you give first of all um i think that the clients are seeing us as, as innovative no mm -hmm. so that's the first uh, advantage you get because they see oh look at those guys they made it no so everybody wants to achieve this objective in terms of what, what i see is of course uh, uh, a different way of communicating different way of interacting different way of exchanging ideas so this is an environment where the innovation flows more freely and people are free to talk express ideas and this then uh, I'm not sure, you, I can say tomorrow I see uh, direct uh, results on the, on the business, but for sure is the long-term driver mm -hmm. of our sustainability in terms of business. Mm -hmm. And Roland, I wonder if I can come to you there. You talked about the work that you're doing with, with Camden and how you know, sort of shifting people's um, perceptions has a, has a real impact on, on the places that we create. Yeah, uh, I think, um, so I think, the, as I said, the missions that Camden has set itself uh, provide really clear leadership, and as the other uh, panellists have said, those missions were generated through consultation with residents, so it's very much a leadership through empowerment, uh, and then, you know, trying to create an environment and a, you know, serious, a sort of um, escalator to get to that uh, better position. Um, I think maybe just picking up on some of the other comments, um, and uh, this this point about uh, you know um, bringing men along with the um, w with with the idea that um, I think I've been quite inspired actually with the work that we've been doing with Network Rail, uh, with the leadership provided by Lord Hendy. Um, so we've been uh, we've we've been working for a year establishing this design training academy, and we've. Um, 
The purpose of it is to reach out to, across the whole organisation to all parts, all disciplines, working anything to do with the built environment, customer experience, um, not those that traditionally think of themselves as designers. And what we're trying to do is to, uh, as I say, remind them of, of who uh, the, the products of their work are aimed at and a self-recognition that their um, that their makeup isn't sufficiently diverse to be able to generate the understanding, the conversation, the discussion about how to achieve that. So that to, to reframe everything from that perspective. Now, Lord Hendy, he started he started out his career as a bus conductor. He worked his way up, and now he's the chairman of Network Rail. But he has looked. He's he's been very forthright about and self-critical about the organisation and the change that it needs, but in a positive and constructive way. So he's been very supportive of what we're doing, uh, both outwards and into his organisation. And he's also been able to look critically at the ladder that he climbed, and he's seen now the barriers that others have have not been able to overcome, and is committed to making those changes. So I think, as well as that sort of strategic leadership, understanding the, the specific barriers that, that people face, and they're multiple and diverse as people are, but they, they each, each individual one can have huge impact. Mm. So for instance, I think, um, I mean, particularly in my industry, in, in architecture, um, as was mentioned before about elitism, it's a real problem. Um, I'm currently on sabbatical, but I've been teaching at the University of East London for 15 years. It's uniquely diverse in its makeup, and most of our students come from families who've never been, to, never, uh, been engaged with higher education or professions. They, the that, getting that first job is uh, probably the most significant barrier uh, for those young people in our, in our industry. And I think just looking at hiring practices within our industry w would be a, you know, a big area for possible change. Yeah. And Paul, that's the role, isn't it, for the Next Gen Committee, getting in front of leaders and saying, look, here's, here's how, how life is for, for people that aren't, that aren't, that aren't you. Um, and are you having positive conversations with, with leaders around that? Yeah, absolutely. We are getting positive feedback. Um, but something which I really want to stress is, um, is, is the culture of learning and unlearning <laughs> and then relearning what you ought to learn. Um, and the reason why I'm saying it is because, and I used the word humility before, is that there is certainly not the expectation that we, we have all the answers. I think uh, in a world which is evolving, um, some of the things we're talking about today would also evolve over time. Um, but I think within our conversations, um, something which I'm proposing and something which I've, I've been telling senior leaders is that we understand that you don't have all the answers but we also want to ensure that as you're learning some of the things which you have learned <laughs> over many years, that that can actually be reduced and you can replace what new information and then act upon it. So, and, and that way it keeps things dynamic, it keeps things agile, um, because in five to ten years' time, again, we'll be having a new discussion um, on you know, where diversity is at, at, you know, at the time. And, um, and that will create um, a world where we're constantly seeing something. And, and another point I'm, I want to mention as well is that we're all looking for, you know, best practice and this gold standard. And it looks different depending on what organization you're in. 
Um, but one of the opportunities and, and maybe challenges as well is how we can move best practice into common practice. Mm -hmm. um, so that it's not just this is the gold standard, this is the common standard across the built environment. Um, because actually I think that is where some of the, the problems which we're talking about today will no longer be problems. So I think that's, to me, the opportunities we, we, we can discuss. You know, how do we you know, transform you know, best practice, which is probably just a few, into common practice? Thank you. Paul, that is so interesting. And one of the things that struck me while you were talking is, I wonder whether we are using our non-executives on our boards wisely and well, because you know, chief executives, you know, may want to change, but they're held accountable by boards. And if the boards are just looking at the numbers or they're just looking at performance in a very, very traditional way, then you're not necessarily going to feel, as a senior leader, empowered to do, go where you might want to go because you're going to be worried about your own position. And if they're still looking for a sort of traditional leadership model, which is all about being out there, being alpha male, you know, then, then that's going to really hold you back in the ambitions of what you might be able to otherwise achieve. So it just suddenly struck me. I'd never really thought about this before. So thank you. This is, you know, this is a learning experience for, for me. Exactly. You know, that actually they're, they're, maybe there's a really powerful role for non-execs here to really challenge themselves about what, you know, delivering a rounded, successful, thriving business really is and changing the way they think about the nature of the conversations they have holding the senior executive leaders to account. I love that there's learning on the panel already. That's, uh, that's brilliant. Um, we've got about 15 minutes left, so before I uh, continue to hog the questions, I'm just going to open up to the audience. Uh, if anyone has anything they'd love to ask our panel, please do not be shy. I know it's Thursday morning. Yes, right here. A microphone is coming to you. We have very diverse client base and uh, very different type of clients, and like diverse it is, is... I think it's been a key to our success and it's also part of the values, like one of the three core values we have is uh, to be 100% open-minded. I think we have approximately like 50-50% uh, representation of males and females. Um, of course, that's just part of the diversity, but kind of a good start. So um, my question re relates to like values, like tangible values or, or something which is uh, inside and not, not really communicated. Has there been some studies or kind of um, tries to get an understand what, how this value base of companies is actually a possibility to change uh, the, the question towards the right direction? Um, I think um, if we go back to the absolute basics, recruitment, and a lot of organisations, and I, and I belong to one of them, and I am a non-executive chair of a housing association, and we're trying to um, start what's called blind recruitment. Because if you have a CV and you, you see the name and you, you see, let's say, Bob Brown, man, went to the top university, oh, must be a good chap. And that person will be selected, and you see somebody else with um, a surname that's Asian or African, and you see a name of a university, thought never heard of it, they go on the reject pile. So it starts from that absolute basics. And then let's say somebody comes in and they are selected, and it's right, everybody to the wheel, we work eight till eight at night. You're not recognizing that that person, whoever they are, 
may have caring responsibility, whether it's children or parents or even their partner. And after they finish work at eight, we all go down to the pub where you do drink a lot of alcohol. That person may not want to do it. So there's different ways that we're trying to break that culture. And what we're saying is you don't have to be accepted to behave like that. And when we're talking about an organisation that's changing, if I'm going to do business with an organisation as the client, I want to make sure that that business holds itself high and practices certain principles. Because I think there isn't an issue about, oh, uh, are they, have they got diverse and inclusive policies? It's non-negotiable for me. If you are providing a service to me and you can't demonstrate that you have equitable policies, I don't do business with you. And I think if we all did more of that, then the buck would stop and people would change because that's how things have changed throughout the decades and centuries. It is because of money, it is because of economics. Sometimes it's because it's the right thing to do. But if we start to withhold our pound or money, whatever your uh, currency is, the organisations would change. And as you said, the boards would look at it. Some of them will know that this is the right thing to do, and others will just look at the bottom line and think we better do it. But change has to come by any means necessary. Let's get some change. And, pardon, did you want Thanks, to go? yeah, could I follow yeah. on from that? Because I, um, I think you're right. I think there is a, an important um, uh, kind of almost punitive aspect to it that's needed. But I, I sort of always think there's a kind of carrot and stick relationship. And I think that we have to try to create an environment where it's more acceptable to be, for organisations to be self-critical. What I observe too often is values that are expressed that are, that are not um, necessarily followed through on. But organisations find it so difficult to admit in public that they're not walking the talk. And I think that's, that's where we have to, we, as, as you say, provide sticks to um, improvement, but also incentives to, to do better in a constructive way. And that goes to Paul's point, doesn't it, about unlearning? You know, it's okay to say, I got that wrong, I got that wrong and there needs to be courage and conviction in, um, in what we want to do and taking, taking that action forward. Uh, I have a question for Barbara. <laughs> Looking at the technology journey for DE&I and then going to real estate, is it apples to apples of how DE&I can be strengthened, become more common practice? Or is it slightly different because there's nuances in real estate opposed to technology? Let me say that uh, um, technology is not super, there is a lot of work to do in technology. And the problem probably there is uh, uh, filling the pipeline from the bottom. Here, uh, strangely enough, uh, we are uh, behind, also behind technology. And it's strange because we are much more uh, client-facing type of business, uh, the, e the built ecosystem concern everybody, so potentially you know, we should uh, have architects, I mean designers, we have a wider pool of resources to get from. So I think that here is maybe that we started a little bit later with the awareness, uh, but uh, from a business perspective is even more important uh, because when we talk about what we can uh, do with the built ecosystem, the built ecosystem concern everybody. 
So, and I think that the, the transformation that we are doing with the sustainability and the technology inside the industry is something that we recognize that we need to change through green and tech. And this is another driver of change or acceleration because you can, well, you want to bring in more diverse background, maybe sustainability is fantastic. We can find a lot of different profiles from there. Tech is the same, so it's not the traditional funnel of people that you were uh, describing before. So we have an opportunity to widen the recruitment, widen the lenses, widen, widen the profile that we want and we want to grow inside the organization. So I think we are not advanced, to be honest. In Italy, even less. We are not so progressive. And we should focus on the large, the large organization. We have plans, we have people who do it. We have the S of ESG, which is now looked at at the board. So we have carrots and sticks. The problem, I think, is more with the smaller organization. Because if you are a 50 people uh, fund manager, that's where no, it becomes more difficult. Because, uh, and that's where probably we need to help uh, and support a smaller organization in understanding how they can change. Can you hear me? Yeah, great. Okay. I just wanted to see if we could take the um, title of this panel a little bit wider in terms of leadership, because we've talked a lot about the leadership that we're showing within our own companies or areas. But we're creating built environments here. So how do we use those built environments to really as you know, show that we're a leading industry to create inclusivity. So, for example, we've put in prayer rooms and spaces where people with neurodiverse um, experiences can just have time for downtime. But there's so much more we can do with the built environment. So just interested in a few reflections on that, please. I'll take that. Thank you. Um, that's a really interesting question. I think that... Um, it's sort of a little bit maybe linked to the previous question about the differences uh, between the built environment and technology because I think technology is solving lots of problems and at the same time creating new ones. So I think there's a big inclusion issue in terms of class with uh, technology and I think that, that um, the sort of rapidity of or the iterative nature of technology is not reflected in the built environment. The decisions that we make now are very, very long-lasting, and, and it has a, a great kind of, um, it locks in um, uh, things, that, decisions that we make now. For me, um, participatory design is about that. It's not about us saying we should have another prayer room or we should do this or that. It's about us giving over the tools to people to help them to have greater agency and also responsibility to engage with the built environment. I think that's got to start with education. Um, it's, I think in the UK, it's, it's, not, um, it's not a subject at school. Um, and I think, uh, you know, this, I think education has to be the starting point for that. Maybe a bit provocative here. It's true that technology now creates, uh, also creates problems, but now in the technology industry, when you design a product that needs to be natively universal, uh, universally designed. And to do that, uh, uh, in the design teams, uh, people with the, the disabilities, diversities are included. You don't send out a product to the market for people with disability unless in the design team there are people with disability because we can empathize, we can understand, but we don't live those sort of problems. So I think that also in this case, no, you want the representation in the team that design. We can do universal design, we can, we can do a lot of that, but I don't see, at least in uh, my, the, the people who should 
solve their own problem represented in the design team. I, I think you're right. I think very quickly, just to say, the person who's got that lived experience, they're living with it daily, they should be a part of the design. And that's what the Royal Institute of British Architects is making sure that we are saying to our members, you know, you've got to make sure the community, the client, the person with the lived experience is involved in that design. You're right. So I agree with absolutely all of that. Um, but there's another dimension as well, which I think is, is, is where the partnership working, the collaboration with public and private sectors becomes really, really critical because it's not just, it shouldn't be just internalised to us, it should be actually turning it around and saying we want to listen and actually we want to talk to local communities, we want to talk to their representatives. They're the ones who have the democratic mandate and the accountability to design the places of the future that work for everyone within those communities. So we absolutely, that comes back to your humility point. You know, I've been talking about being servants um, this week. You know, it, it's that we're here to serve, you know, and we can't serve unless we understand and we, we have to listen and not just kind of bring our preconceptions. Even if we've taken account of all the things you're talking about, you know, we might still have got it wrong. When we listen to local people, we might hear something different. We talked at the beginning of, um, of this conversation about... Um, uh, how you know we've moved forward on ESG or on the E of ESG because we've got targets in place. You know we've got the industry coming together to have a net build, a net zero building standard. I wonder if we need the same sort of thing here that we need a um, EDI building standard so that everything that we design thinks about. Um, who we are serving, you know, that there are prayer rooms, there are places for um, people with um, neurodiversity, there are uh, whatever it might be, might be. Do we need to get together as an industry and come up with that, that standard? Anyone can answer. Yeah, I think I can answer that one. <laughs> um, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely an interesting proposition um, when thinking about standards and and something which is evidently clear is that the e and esg is it seems to be going ahead and s and even g are, are falling behind and and i think one of the reasons why is that standards are, are not as clear on on, on the s and g and and i think it, it somewhat reflects the complexities as well um it means uh, very different things depending on where you are we, we're speaking on the uk context and and i'm sure there's various differences uh, across across the world um but when it comes to thinking about standards and we've we've mentioned as an example multi uh, faith rooms um and in, in addition potentially large organizations then then yes i think we should be saying that if you are an organization of a particular size, then the chances are, again, principally in London, the chances are that this is going to be your makeup, and actually, this is something you need to be included in your in your buildings. Um, and that's just one example, and I'm sure there are various different other examples as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think there's quite a lot to be learned from environmental standards. First of all, I think um, a recognition that they aren't that they're not perfect, that they're not good enough but that they're really useful in terms of starting the boulder rolling. Um, and that, like, sort of not letting, uh, what's the phrase, um, perfection be the enemy of good, that um, we can't necessarily re uh, represent the full spectrum of diversity. I mean, 
the built environment needs to be as diverse as the full population that use it, which is infinitely diverse. And that cannot be captured in a standard. And I think there are potentially risks with the sort of categorization of, of diversity and that, that creates its own problems. But being self-aware of that, um, I still think there's a, uh, I, I think in, in an environment, in a, in a sort of funding environment, especially in infrastructure in the public sector, where it's all about, um, you know, cost efficiency, then uh, things get prioritized. And if there isn't a benchmark, quite frankly, it doesn't get prioritized. Thank you. So we have two minutes um, left. So I'm going to wrap up with a final, final question. Um, but I am an oddly optimistic journalist around this issue, which um, I'm not sure how it sits with me. Um, but, you know, we're, we're here at MIPIN, which is usually talking about deals. And apart from the investment minister who talked about return on capital yesterday, I haven't had any of those discussions. Every um, panel that we've had up here has talked about people. It's talked about wellness. It's talked about... Um, creating places that matter to people and so I think we're nudging in that that right direction and and Paul to your point around common practice I wonder from each of you whether you think this industry can be the leader there and take best practice and turn it into common practice and I'm going to start at this end with Melanie and move and finish with Paul. Um, So I'm optimistic too because I think the coalition of the willing and the action-oriented is ever-growing. And I think the pressure on those who don't get it or don't want to get it is becoming, is ratcheting up as well, you know, because it's becoming increasingly clear that customers are demanding the same values that we've been talking about. So I think the space within which you can be a successful business and operate and win, win contracts in whatever form is relevant to your business is shrinking. So I think there's, you know, there's all sorts of things going on which mean that we should be optimistic. I think we're right to challenge ourselves that we need to go further faster. I love the focus on, you know, let's turn this into action. Let's not just talk. Let's, let's actually find the actions. And just, I know it's only two minutes, but just, um, if I may, you know, on that standards question, I think you know, the, the question we need to ask is, would that help to drive outcomes? Would that help to drive action? Would that help to drive outcomes? And I don't know the answer to that, but I'd love to go away and think about it and talk to you about it some more. Um, so I'm going to shut up because I don't think I've answered the question, but I've said what I probably need to say in, two, in my two minutes. <laughs> uh, I'm going to echo your optimism and say yes. Um, I think the one thing we haven't talked about uh, today is about age. And um, I think the, the sort of, um, you know, as, as I'm getting older, I think the generations that are coming up, as, as you said, um, the values of, of society are shifting and that, um, you know, what was acceptable is no longer acceptable. And that, in the end, that drives value. Um, and that's what's going to make the change. Thank you. Optimistic as well, plus one. Uh, no, I think that the, going back to the standard, I think it would be important to have some sort of standards. Uh, we are working with very progressive organizations at the worldwide level where they have their... DEI standards for their buildings across the world. And it's useful now to show these examples and then over time I think they become the norm and that reflects on the value of your property, how, how good you can market your property, the price it holds, the lower vacancy. So it becomes like the E in ESG. I think it's important to do it. It's not so capex intensive is not so difficult, so it's not like retrofitting a building, no? It's something uh, simpler, that, so I'm in favor of uh, defining some sort of standards, maybe not compulsory, but uh, 
like, uh, I mean, a certification, something like that. I think it would be a useful advance for the industry. Thank you, Valerie. Yeah, I th I'm number four. I'm optimistic <laughs> for change. I think that the Royal Institute of British Architects, we're not working on our own. We're working as a partnership with other individuals, organisations in the built environment. And I think that is the way that we will start to make sure that the change permeates throughout different parts of society. It's not just about recruitment, we're learning from that. It's not just about education, it's not just about training. We're doing things, as I said, in partnerships, so we can learn from each other, but we're looking at the outcomes. This is not an um, intellectual exercise. We're looking at the outcomes and how this will impact on the built environment, on some of the big questions that we have today on climate change, etc. But also we're looking at our members, because our members, as a group, our members total 350,000, and they will have actions that will impact on the people we're there to serve, and that's the community. And this is not just a UK issue, this is global. So yeah, I'm really optimistic, but we've got to ch make sure we have this action, um, learn from it the risks, but make sure that these have great impact. But yeah, really optimistic. Thank Fantastic. you. Thank you, Paul. What do you think my answer's going to be? <laughs> optimistic as well. Um, and, and the reason why I, I'm optimistic is when I look back at 2020, um, that's three years ago now, so it's amazing how time has, has gone really quickly. One of the apprehensions were some of the, the issues in 2020, would it just phase out? And I'm glad to say that three years on, we are advancing in our conversations. It isn't just a nice to have, it's a must have. And, and I think there are threats that if we don't uh, take this seriously, then those organizations will be left behind. So I'm glad that there is something which is fueling the fire in all of us to take this forward. Um, in one of our surveys, and I'll just leave a stat here, 42% of our respondents says, said that they joined the industry by chance. And one of the uh, easiest respondents, uh, responses were that, fine, we need to go into schools and education. Um, and just as we're talking on this panel, one of the thoughts that came to mind is that means that 42% have little to no expectations about this industry. So therefore, there is a massive opportunity to create that expectation, to create that standard, so that when they join the industry, they stay here. They are as productive as they can be, and they can thrive in our industry. Fantastic. We've gone over, but if there is any conversation where it's worth me getting told off by my team for going over, it is uh, this one, and they will. Uh, um, it's this one. Thank you so much for such a wonderful conversation. Hopefully you can continue it in the, in the room, but please put your hands together for Melanie, Roland, Barbara, Valerie, and Paul.